Welcome to the Austin Action Fest podcast. We focus on filmmaking from idea to distribution and everything in between. We focus on you getting your project in the can and for the world to see. Thank you for listening to the Austin Action Fest podcast. Now let's get cracking. Chris, good to Hello. see you. Hello. Hello. How you feeling? Very nice to be back with you. Good, good, good. So how how are the the mountains there? Mountains are great. It's about it's in the mid 60s. Life is good. <laughs> I'll be back in Austin by uh, mid September. Cool, cool, cool. So that's when uh, Fear of the Walking Dead uh, production is going to begin again. Uh, we're slated to begin shooting uh, October five. Good to know. Good to know. So, in the the last last part of the interview, you we touched on um, Sky Captain and the World Tomorrow as far as the yeah. So, what was your experience? In fact, why did they go that way? Okay, well, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow began way before I became associated with it. Okay, um, Kerry Conroy, who was the director, as far as I know was uh, a film student at Cal Academy of the Arts. Mm -hmm. And he made a short that used this very interesting technique of shooting stuff, converting it to high resolution black and white, then colorizing it. And it came with a very interesting effect. His producing partner in school happened to be John Avnet, uh, assistant. Okay. That was her day job. They brought the art project to John Avnet mm-hmm. and he said, Great, let's make a feature. And of course, those two young film students were like, Yes, absolutely, that would be great. And he said, I'll give you $3 million. And they went, $3 million? That sounds like a lot of money. So they started. $3 million was not a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> As students, I, I, I hold no, I, I give them no ill judgment. In a similar situation, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, that's the big shot. What they didn't do was the pre-production. They did not fully understand the ramifications of virtual production. So they shot it poorly. Okay. Um, they, they got big name stars, you know, they got Angelina Jolie and Giovanni Ribisi yes. and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Yeah. And they set things up on a green screen stage, which wasn't actually a green screen stage. It looked more like a warehouse converted to a green screen stage. Okay. But again, they didn't have the proper preparation. They shot against green. They shot against blue. They shot against whatever they could come up with. They didn't understand the really granular particulars of virtual production. Right. So they did things like they would build um, props that the actors would interact with, which is right. correct. Right. But right. they didn't actually build the props. What they did was they put green, green or blue um, stand-ins for those. Okay. So the hands would be interacting with a railing or something. Right. Their plan was to replace that railing. They they wanted to do replace everything, which is a really amateur, unprepared way to go. Uh, they also didn't pay attention to the principles of regular feature cinematography. So they lit scenes from one side or part of the scene and then swapped the lights to the other side. So the actors themselves, whatever they were actually practically lighting, mm-hmm. didn't make sense from shot to shot. Mm. So I was hired by a visual effects company that was literally going out of business because they didn't write their contract properly. And all that they had promised to do was to deliver shots approved by Paramount 
for X number of dollars, not understanding that Paramount was reserving the right to micromanage them at every step. I learned an awful lot, or I applied an awful lot of what I suspected and knew right. on the project. Namely, pre-production is seriously important. They had the attitude that they could literally fix it in post, which is death to a production. Okay, I, I, see, you smile, were, I see you smile. I see you smile. They were digital <laughs> artists. They decided they would fix their own production in post, which is kind of understandable for noobs because they think, oh, yeah, we can do whatever we have to do, not realizing that it was going to take thousands of hours and millions of dollars. Fix it on set. So I came in to this company called um, Ring of Fire Engine Room. Mm Mm-hmm. I knew the producers kind of, we had never worked together, but they told me their situation. Sorry. The ambulance coming for my career. (laughs) Coming for them lungs. That's what they're coming from. What's that? I said, they're coming for those lungs. They're going to pick you up. Stop. (laughs) I just had my lungs and heart checked perfectly clear. Believe it or not. <laughs> I got to do my due diligence for, you know, for my dog and everyone else. So, okay. All right, I'll put it out. I won't be on camera with it. <laughs> hey, man, you live, you live your life. Kids, Yo, don't smoke. You're all good. I hadn't smoked. Started when I was 13. That's when the, I don't know any adults that start smoking. Um, all right. So, so what happened was, this company had a whole mess of shots. Mm-hmm. Their assumptions were that the shots would be delivered to them in a way that was conducive to green screen compositing. They weren't. Also, Paramount, again, Paramount didn't, the Paramount producers had very little knowledge of visual effects and its process. Okay, it's a, it's a classic case of a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So they wanted the look that the director had presented in his art project. But they thought that the only way to get that mm-hmm. was to make him go through the same process to arrive at that, which had about 15 unnecessary steps. Again, his was an experimental art project They wanted a movie. So I spent about a half a day there and I realized everybody's assumptions were killing this project. And the visual effects company, they were in it. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. So they didn't realize that they should have done what I did, which was go to Paramount and say, look, you want this look. We'll give you this look. We guarantee you this look, but we are not going through the same steps. Makes sense to me. Because this is a movie, not an art project. Okay, but what I, I mean, that's, you know, that movie came out. uh, Everybody thought it had a really cool look, but what most people don't realize is that the reason for that cool look is that it was covering up a multitude of errors. I worked with some exceptionally talented people, really talented, Mm -hmm. but all they were doing were fixing problems and they made it look great, but it was way too arduous a task to be in production. Uh, By the time I came on, the company had already been working on the shots for six months at 300 shots and hadn't delivered a single one. Wow. And by the, I don't know if you've ever heard of a bond company, but bond companies come in as in, as negative insurance. Right. Okay, they insure the studio that a film will be delivered. Right. According to the most basic <laughs> uh, you know, requirements. Yeah. They just want a film. They're like we need to have something released in a theater on such and such a date. 
Mm -hmm. So if the bond company is already involved, you're in deep trouble. And the bond company was already involved. And the bond company representative was a, a former sound mixer. So he's throwing his opinions into the mix. Mm -hmm. Again, not knowing any, not, not even not only, not even not knowing about visual effects, right. but not knowing about filmed production. So he's like, well, we need to do this. We need to do that. I'm like, no, we don't stop. What we need to do is deliver. Okay, but that taught me a very valuable lesson about virtual production. Mm -hmm. Cut to, that was in 2004. I worked on that for the summer of 2004. Mm -hmm. I think it came out in the fall of 2004. I don't even know. I know that when I went to the theater to see it, right. I was really impressed, but... <laughs> I had severe negative flashbacks for our <laughs> I can't believe how hard we worked on that sequence. Um, so then, since that time, mm -hmm. you mentioned, Chill, the Unreal Engine. Yes. It's all over the magazines, all over everywhere. Right. Yeah. Right? The thing that you got to know about magazine articles is that they are generally trying to sell you something not directly they're not advertisements but they're selling you on an idea right. and I did research about a year and a half ago into Unreal Engine mm -hmm. to examine the possibility of a virtual set right at the time there were one or two stages in LA that specialized in Unreal Engine mm -hmm. but they're for sportscasts right. and newscasts. You know, those are virtual studios. It's, you know, some people standing behind podiums for, you know, NFL tonight or something. Like CNN and exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. Weather Channel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it started with the Ultimat back in the 80s, which is the, the weather person in front of a blue right. and all that kind of stuff. The, Unreal, the only difference that the Unreal Engine brought to the table was real-time rendering. Right. Meaning that the stuff, the weather thing, didn't have to be pre-recorded. Right. It could be played live, and you could view the weather person or the studio people or whatever and the background simultaneously. Right. Okay? The old-time the old weather reports, that weatherman was or weather woman was looking at a teleprompter and an approximation of the map projected behind them but it was pre-recorded right they couldn't do any changes which is why sometimes the pointer didn't point to the right state but it wasn't live rendering so and you have, again, Unreal Engine, and everybody's going, oh, it's a game. Unreal Engine is a, a game engine. Yeah. That's how it was developed. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we're well aware of that one. <laughs> by Epic. Yeah. So then comes The Mandalorian for the Disney Channel. Yes. And Mandalorian is using the Unreal Engine. And Epic... And Lucas and Disney, everybody's like, yeah, we're doing the Unreal Engine. Mm -hmm. Hey, what they fail to mention is the fact that Lucasfilm teamed up with Epic to customize their uh, version of the Unreal Engine. This is not the Unreal Engine that is available on the stages in LA. Makes sense. Okay. So they are doing daily, deep, development side by side mm -hmm. so they are creating a technology that already has a name right. but nobody has access to that technology except for the people developing it right <laughs> it's necessarily a bad thing but again remember they're selling something right artists are selling their ability and coolness to deal with this new technology right. and epic is selling their software now, I do think 
that virtual production is absolutely going to be a norm. However, it is going to force a 180, a complete 180, on the production pipeline paradigm. Right, because I have to front load it? Exactly. Because you can render whatever you want in real time, that's great, unless you don't have anything to render. <laughs> so no, you have to create all this stuff. The engine isn't creating anything, it's rendered what has already been created. So it's a tremendous tool for cinematographers who shoot on virtual sets and directors because they'll now be able to see what will be going on back there. Now that's what it is. Now when we do blue screen compositing, we're compositing plates that were photographed at a different time or we're compositing computer generated elements that are often created after the fact due to TV schedules. We have very little R&D and development time. You know, I only get the script a few a week before we start shooting it. Oh wow. So all this happens, you know, in a different timeline. Right. That's why well, well, one, one, one second uh, we got to uh, go back and define something. What what front can you tell the people what front loading is? What what I meant by that? I'm sorry, I'm going to what what is? What what did I mean by front loading? Oh, well, I'm yeah, I'm about to get into that. Right okay. now, we can reserve the back end of the schedule to create the things that are going to be used. In our show in particular, we already have a library of the typical weapons Mm -hmm. that have been 3D scanned to the right and textured and all that. But if we need a building, if we need a skyline, if we need a mountain, all those things get created after the fact. The cinematographer, the director, and the visual effects supervisor work together to frame, to compose things on the shoot. I'm like, you, cinematographer, are used to not leaving empty space in the frame. But remember, we're going to have to put a mountain back there. Mm -hmm. So you got to frame room for the mountain. So it'll look like a bad shot at the beginning, but at the end, it's going to be correct. Got it. With virtual production, you would actually see that face at the time. Right. So that's where the help is. It helps the cinematographer compose based on what will be in the frame, and it allows the director to not have to do so much imagining. Right. Front loading, however, is what will happen with real-time rendering. You need to have all of those assets built beforehand. Right. Visual effects becomes heavily involved in pre-production. Got it. Because those things, if the director wants to see them and the cinematographer wants to see them, they have to exist. Right. Now they exist in the imagination until after the fact, and then we go through a series of approvals. But if you want those things to be rendered on set, they got to be built long before you render them. And here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a question from the newbie. So I'm, I'm learning all this, absorbing. Yeah. How, how does this actually, like, how does this play out? Are we talking about, like, the director's monitor when, when we're shooting a scene and you've, let's say, it's a virtual set and we're, it's going to be mountains. Like, it, it's just like the news. You can see the mountains. You can see the people. You can see everything while they're shooting it in the uh, – in the directors uh, yes yes okay. what you shoot is what will be the final so we, what we are doing is creating a virtual set or a virtual location before we shoot okay instead of shooting someone against blue screen you're shooting some physically shooting someone against blue or green screen but what is on that blue or green screen is already there simultaneously like in video village got it it's like the old rear screen projection where rear screen projection the old movies from the 40s 50s 60s they would actually have pre photographed footage that they would project from behind onto a scrim 
and then the, the taking lens, the, the primary camera, would be able to shoot what was coming through the scrim as well as the foreground actor right. simultaneously. Got it. It's essentially like that, only we're not projecting anything. We're rendering it. Right. And just, just for the newbies out there, rem rendering just means taking your mathematical calculations and visualizing them. It turns right. into pictures. The, the camera turns into pictures uh, that are lit and textured. What's that? Did Cameron um, fast forward this pro uh, this process for Avatar? I no, no. As far as I understand, Cameron was not using real time rendering. Mm -hmm. Cameron was using a lot of pre visualization. Right. So a lot of the models were built, but not final. They were stand ins, gotcha. so you could get space, and you know you you could get a sense of the shot, but it was not the final shot. The difference with um, virtual production is that it's the final shot. Um, it's funny, I just saw Avatar last weekend at the drive-in here in Morrisville. It's a beautiful <laughs> film, but I liked it better when it was called Dances with Wolves. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> call it dances with Smurfs, but you know, same. Poker, or or Pocahontas or Fern Gully, pick pick yes. whichever one. <laughs> it was a really well done film. Yeah, I and loved it. The thing is, is that um, because he shot it in native 3D, right? You know, stereoscopically, right? Virtual digital work lends itself perfectly to that. Because all you have to, you have the 3D models built. Right. So all you have to do is a double render that's offset by the stereoscopy. That's it. That's, that's right. why so many CG movies, like 100% CG movies, mm -hmm. are among the first to come out in quote unquote real 3D. Right, right. Just another render pass mm -hmm. from a slightly offset angle. Right. And that's what he used. So oh. his backgrounds, all his set pieces were digitally photographed stereoscopically as well. So it blended together seamlessly. That movie is the one that sold me on 3D because up until that point, I thought it was pointless. And yeah. I saw Avatar and I was like, oh, oh okay. With the exception of digital movies, mm -hmm. it was extraction. It was what's called multiplaning, yes. which isn't real 3D. What it does is it separates a certain object in the frame. It's like pulling a mat and mm. just brings it forward in two dimensional space. Right. It's like the old view master. Yeah. A series of 2d elements in space. There's no parallax shift. If you can't wrap, it's not a 3d object. It's still a 2d object. So if your camera moves over here, it's still <laughs> got it, but it's cool because it looks like something's coming at you. Right. Yeah, and if you don't look too closely. As far as virtual productions, who's using it or wants to use it or just poo-pooing it? You know, who, who are the players in this game? Um. <clears throat> well, the newscasts and the studio type stuff has been using it. Versions of it right. for a while. It's either Unreal Engine or pre pre comped all that kind of stuff. I mean, it has been on the rise. Right. Um, the most robust use of it, mm -hmm. and in a standalone fashion, mm -hmm. now is The Mandalorian. Right. There mm -hmm. was a TV show a few years back called Pan Am. Pan yeah. Am, it ran for a very short time in the States, Right. Continued for another full season because Jap Japan loved it. So Japan financed it much in the same way that Germany financed Baywatch for years. <laughs> Even though nobody in the United States was watching it, they're like, why isn't this canceled? And Is it because of Hasselhoff? Is it just because yeah. of Hasselhoff? <laughs> <laughs> and Absolutely. German television financed it for its last two seasons. Oh, man. So Pan Am. Fine, thanks. How are you? I agree with you. Um, 
Pan Am was actually supervised by a dear friend of mine named Jake Braver. I was offered the job, but I had already signed up for, um, what was I doing at the time? Person of interest. Uh -huh. I already accepted that show. But I knew that Jake Braver, whose birthday is soon, could handle it, and he did like gangbusters. But Pan Am was kind of a m middle range between Sky Captain. It was actually a better version of Sky Captain, more than it was a version of The Mandalorian, because again, they weren't rendering in real time. But they were much better prepared. They pre-built the set pieces that actors would have to interact with. Good. So shadows fell naturally. People's hands actually gripped rails or doorknobs. Right. Like that. It was very well done, but very expensive. And ultimately, the American audience passed. Right. Uh. Um. So now we leap forward, I don't know, eight, ten years, and now we've got the Mandalorian. Right. I mean, virtual acting has been discussed for a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. uh, Actors are afraid that they're going to be replaced by avatars. Correct. No, that's absolutely correct. Right. Um, but even watching the movie Avatar you realize that you know you watch uh what was the what was it called the spirits within or something something square did oh yeah final fantasy 90s yeah it was like the spirits within i guess the uncanny valley it wasn't it was not very well you get everything that robert zemeckis did like with uh polar express and all that kind of stuff <coughs> it's called the uncanny valley Mm -hmm. Where things get too close to human, but not yeah. exactly, and it creeps everybody out. <laughs> that's what that's what the uncanny valley is. If you know yeah. the robots, you can totally buy it. Go back and watch like Akira and stuff. Yeah, totally fine. Not creepy. We know it's a cartoon. <laughs> then you, then you watch Polar Express, where it's all Tom Hanks with glass eyes and you're like these look like tom hanks mannequins <laughs> then you get avatar real motion capture including highly advanced facial capture right and then the 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 air the rightful heir to avatar was a movie called battle angel alita i was getting ready to bring that up yeah also cameron produced Jim Cameron wrote Battle Angel Alita and wanted to do it. But he was already involved with Avatars 2 and 3. So he put it up for bid. He bid it out oh, to directors. Right. And See, I didn't know that part. I thought he had just selected Rodriguez. Oh, no. Yo, yo, he oh, wow. Why do, you, why, do you say, why do you say it like that? <laughs> no, he I remember when he out. Robert owns a green screen stage. Yes. So Robert got the bid. Got it. I'm not going to speak ill of anybody, but let's just say Robert got the bid. Yeah, I know a lot, a lot of us worked on that in varying capacities uh, out there, so I understand. Um, my wife was the A-camera focus puller. Okay. Alita Battle Angel. Yeah. And the cinematographer who shot Alita Battle Angel or Battle Angel Alita is one of my favorites. His name is Bill Pope. He shot the Bill Pope? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I know that. Bill Pope shot Alita. I got to work with Bill Pope about 20 years ago. He's an amazing guy. Hmm. Um, he was the Wachowski's uh, cinematographer for Bound and I think all three of the Matrixes. Yes. And he's a fantastic human being. Bill Pope 
is in my pantheon of heroes, along with Darius Kanji. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was a real, Alita was a really good mix of practical and virtual. Yeah, most of the, the sets were crazy. Most of the sets were practical. Oh, I mean, they made... Yeah, they built the city. Fucking, you know, you made an actual city. What killed, what got me was um, when we were working a set and they had uh, like, like uh, not manholes. Oh, you worked on Alita? Like yeah, I, worked, I did a little bit on that one. Oh, I thought um, you meant you worked with Robert, but oh, wow, you worked No, with no, not, not yet, not yet. So I did a little bit of a little, uh, I think I did some PA and some, uh, definitely some background work on the actual movie. I had more fun working on the experience thing that they did after the fact. Yeah. That was way more fun. It was all improv. But working on a set, they were massive sets. Yes. And we got to actually, it was crazy because we were in the Elite Experience inside like a big warehouse. And so that's like stations in the game. But they had a special, I think it was for Dell. Like the Dell whatever party was on the Elite set. So they hired the improv actors to come back to the real set and work the streets. And it's like, you look you're like, you feel like, like you could walk up into the buildings. You could go into the, it was, it was, it was impressive. Times. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was Good. wild. Well, it, it, I mean, it was great. I was walking by the entire, that entire thing while, while it was being built. And while they were filming for two months when I was working for Rooster Teeth. So mm -hmm. at night, It'd be all lit up. You know, it's like this little mountain. That you oh, yeah. It was creepy, but it looked cool. It was yeah, all awesome. one day. We'll do another one, but Robert is not fast. Robert is a waffler. He doesn't commit often. So it's like, yeah, maybe. Got maybe it. Anyway. Okay, okay. But and I also very much enjoyed the movie. But what's funny is that Alita Battle Angel was kind of the reverse of what we're talking about with virtual production. Right. Because the sets were mostly real mm -hmm. and Alita herself was mostly virtual. Yeah. Yeah. So you are seeing a meeting. I do think it's inevitable. I don't think virtual production will replace any other type of production wholesale. Right. Um, I think it's going to get off to a bumpy start because all producers now, except for a very, very rare few, mm -hmm. come up in the, you know, the pipeline that has existed since the beginning. Right. Makes, makes and sense. it is a 180. All of a sudden, so many producers who often claim either as an excuse or sometimes genuinely that they don't understand visual effects right. are going to have to understand visual effects. Very <laughs> but the other funny thing is that visual effects, if once virtual production sort of, you know, hits its stride, right. there's going to be very little post work for visual effects. It will become more like virtual production design and set decoration mm -hmm. than it will fix it in, fixing it in post. Right. Because I could, I mean, even right now, I could see, since we have an, I have an, I like, I love sci-fi and adventure. So like, I could see very easily if someone had the capability at a, my budget level, obviously, um, how I would use literally 80% of this. Or combination of say you have like two columns here in a green screen and someone's creating something Lord of the Rings esque in the background right. and you got some practical. I, I could see how this would become more prevalent and I think that I think that the idea has no way. There's no way it doesn't become more prevalent because honestly, when you started explaining what exactly it meant, I'm thinking of all these stupid filters and effects people have on their phones with altered reality, augmented reality, or uh, even this, even like the Snapchat filter filters and stuff where it's real time replacing someone's face with something weird. And you, you look into these things and it's like, this is a joke to me. It's like, oh, it's a fun thing to do on my phone. But I'm like, think about what 
what amount of power that actually is. You turn my face into a zombie, not on a green screen, I'm in regular life, on a cell phone. It's like, able to crack your face. On a cell phone. And so Something that didn't exist in features until <laughs> about 96. Wow. And so the kids coming up now, what are they going to be able to do with that in five, ten years? So well, this is normal for them. But see, here's where at first, you know, I've been through several democratizations of technology. When I started, it was all film. Yep. Then we saw it move to video. Then we saw it move to high def. And now it's up to 4K. When I started in the business, there was only linear editing. Yep. Only non-linear editing was fake. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't fake previs. It was previs. We used a frame buffer to get the third image. Right. But, mm -hmm. when, but all that gave you was a list, which you would then have to go back in and treat as a linear edit. Um, you know, and then we had the Avid, and, you know, well, I mean, again, 30, 32 years and 25 years in VFX. Right. Yeah. In time. Um, but the one thing that usually happens is that after the rush of a glut of people who just have the equipment, right. the talent ultimately wins out. Oh, but yeah years you have a lot of garbage <laughs> Seriously. I mean but what it, what it taught me is that technology is just a tool yeah. nobody can make them no nobody can make a good thing just because they have the right buttons and the right hardware Right. <laughs> I aesthetic thinking, planning, creativity. Yeah. I, I go back to what my cinematography professor told me. I can only teach skills. I can't can't teach talent. The tools are the skills. Yeah. It's not the tools. It's the artist. That, that, makes, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And uh, like my brother is a DJ. Jerry, you know, Jerry used to spin, and I love music. Right. I. I can go down a deep hole if we went, like if I decided to get interested. And he started, he had a tractor turntable and he started showing me all these tricks. And he's the kind of person, you learn different. So Jerry will buy every tool you can get your hands on that sounds cool and play with it all. But he sounds like crap for like a long time. But eventually he's got all these tools. I'm not like that. I'm like, Show me how to match the beats. Okay. Show me how to do this one effect, then I'm going to abuse it. And show me how to do this other effect, then I'm going to abuse it. And some people will go out and they will DJ and they will get this equipment. I would never do this, but they'll get this equipment and now they've got all these little buttons and toys oh, yeah. to put with, but it's not good. No. But if they were just good at matching beats and looping, they could make masterful tracks out of that. But they skip past that to play with all of the tours. Fun trivia. When I was 14 and 15 years old in 1978 and 1979, I was a house party hip hop DJ. <laughs> so, so you, you know, so you know. rappers are like. <laughs> it's funny, like people are like, yeah, I like old school NWA. I'm like, NWA, old school. That's twenty years late. That's 10, 10 Come years come later. back at me with the funky four plus one. Oh. Funkmaster Flex. Look, I came up pop blocking. So I was listening to Frankie Beverly and Maze, Roger and Zap. Like I was because of that breaking and all that, you end up learning about all this other stuff that nobody even knows about. So I went to a playground party that Flash DJ'd in the South Bronx in nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> I didn't know who he respect. was. <laughs> My man got respect. Oh yeah. My friend was like, "Let's go to this party." I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, it's a party in a playground." I'm like, "How can you do a party in a playground? Ain't got no power." 
they tied into the light poles. <laughs> nice. The light poles in New York used to have regular Edison plugs. Now they don't. Now you would literally have to tie in. But they used to have Edison plugs. So pop it open, plug in your plug in your system. Did Technics not know that. Cables and Gemini microphone, um, Gemini mixers. That was all anybody had. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so my next question is this. You actually kind of answered it, answered it as far as what do you see as a future of all of this? Um, you, you already kind of went into that. Um, what do you want to see from from all of, of this uh, virtual production? Mm. What do you want to see? Um, I would like to see the same that I like to see with any new technology. Right in that it better serves the story. I'm right. still a narrative storyteller, or not even. I'm a storyteller at heart. I like to have stories told to me, right. whether it be visual or verbal. Um, I just hope that the technology does not exceed the content, but supports the content and raises both up. Got it. I got it. That makes sense. That sounds legit to me. And frankly, you know, I wish I could do this forever. I don't think I can. I'm getting old. Um, I would like to be a part of at least the next step. Right. You know, I'm like getting I said. A bit more robust. I'm sorry. Getting getting a little bit more robust. Yeah, I I would like to see it come into its own. Mm. I have no prediction. I wouldn't even. <laughs> predict what my son's generation will see during his adulthood. He's 17, but Woo! he's a storyteller. You know, I wouldn't even presume to know. Right. I could never in a million years have predicted where we are now back when I started in 1986. There's no way I would have been able to predict that. But that's good. You know, I'm not a futurist. I'm an early adopter, you know, and I mean flexible, but let the, I'm no genius. Let the geniuses figure it out. Okay. I just want to be able to be playing with it. That's all. all, right. all right. So Ben, you had more, more questions. Um, so is there any, any advice you would give to those of us who don't have Robert Rodriguez level budgets or ways that you think we can practically put some of this stuff to use on our, on our smaller sets. Oh, Is that, yeah. absolutely. And I've been a fan of this from the get go because don't worry about the latest toy. No. Don't worry about spending money on the biggest and the best because shit becomes obsolete within two years. Okay. <laughs> Figure out what you need to best make your product. Okay, again, going back to my days in advertising, which I look back on with horror, all the people who don't know anything will want to use the buzzwords and make sure they're being catered to with the latest and the greatest. Right. Oh, I need a Quantel paint box. Oh, I need an Inferno. Do you guys know paint by? No, ridiculous. Okay. You can make a really good movie with crayon. Okay. It's the story that matters. So assess what your story is first. Right. Again, I said the first three steps are, are the most important three steps of pre-production. It's probably the most important seven steps. Hmm. Okay. okay. Once you get on a set, once you turn over a camera, no matter how well prepared you are, you are in by definition damage control. It is a hundred percent potential until you turn your camera on. So get the peep, you know, train yourself. Don't just get people to help you out because they're friends. You can right. do that, but give them homework. Right. Mm -hmm. Learn your stuff. My wife, 
who's been a camera assistant for 25 years, mm -hmm. every new job she gets, she does homework. I don't know a single camera assistant better than she is in the country, and I've worked with hundreds. Right. The only one that might have been better died, sadly, two years ago. Okay? Mm -hmm. Every time she gets a new gig, she's like, I got to get this manual, right. even if it's a camera she's used. Right. Because her really? job is to bring something to the table. She's a collaborator. She's not there to take over the DP's job or the director's job, but her job is when the director makes a suggestion or the DP makes a suggestion, she knows the best way to do it. Right. Steven Spielberg once said, the good directing is asking highly qualified people for help. Right. That is true. Help is important, but so is highly qualified. Right. There's no excuse for anybody to come onto a set uneducated. There is so much information available everywhere. You don't have to go to a graduate film school like I did. You don't, you know, you don't have to do these things. You can, and they help for different parts, but I would never go to graduate film school to learn how to be a grip or a gaffer. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. I went there to learn how to write. Okay? Cool. Check your people. Get commitments. Mm. You, as a director, should be able to answer any question about the story. If an actor comes to you with a question that you can't answer, mm -hmm. work it out with the actor. But be pre preparation is the only thing that can save us. Right. So something that you uh, along those lines, you've been talking, you know, the first interview that we just did a couple days ago. And now I'm sorry, I can't. It's uh, really I'm, I'm sorry. The, the first at the, uh, the first interview that we did uh, yeah. today, today and the day before, uh -huh. um, I believe in preparation, but also you have to know how to take notes. Yeah. Your meetings. No matter yeah. what you're doing, take notes. You see this? I've been writing the entire time what you've been saying. Yeah. <laughs> take notes. But that's preparation. Guys, when you're looking at this, when you're the information that you guys have been getting uh, from these podcasts, yeah. take <clears throat> notes. Go back. If you missed something, take notes. You may learn something. I'm using this stuff. Take notes. Yeah, and I taught college for nine years. I'm used to lecturing. It makes it makes our job really easy. We just we yeah, get you on, on a tangent, like just go, just go. We're just gonna sit here because I'm writing things down too. So yeah, perfect. I don't want to interrupt you. Trust me. You just, just yeah. keep on coming. Another thing. Use those. You guys know me. Use those notes to ask me questions if you need anything clarified. Yeah. They're no dumb questions. They're only dumb assumptions. Hmm. Yeah, because I, yeah, I know I know some VFX guys, chill, and a couple of other friends local, and I'm looking at let's 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 play with some of this because I am not always an early adopter all the time because I'm normally like still learning something else. But this this is this is intriguing to me, and like I say, we've been talking a lot about VFX and like fantasy oriented stuff. We're in. Someone's gonna have to make all this stuff anyways because we don't have it. So we could let's play with some virtual sets, at least some some portions of the production that right. might be. Uh, I don't see a reason not to. And, and for me, I'm perfecting my process. So when we do something, do something, do it from scouting to uh, what do you call it? Lens lens correction. You know, lens operation. All up and down the process. So when we get on set, I'm there way beforehand, maybe the day before. When I come on to the shoot day, I already have my list, I'm ready to go. Sure. Lighting, all that stuff, you know, uh, lighting checks, the whole bit. I don't know all of it because, in fact, I'm taking a cinematography course um, later on this month. Great. I'm, I'm trying to make yeah. sure I know my shit. So when I go to Ben, I say, look, Ben. Next week, before we do this stuff, I'm going to come in at whatever time of day. I'm going to see where the sun is, you know, with the sun surveyor, the whole bit. 
16 where everything is. So when I get on set, you know, I'm, I'm there beforehand. I talk to Ben, let's say he's the director. I talk to Ben about all this stuff. Uh, make sure the shot's ready to go, or let's say it's a VFX shot. Right. You know, you know, take my theta, do what I, I want a theta, but you know, uh, take the scan, do the whole bit, do the shot, get it to uh, get the information. Or hopefully, I'll have all the lens of information. Send it off to to editing, sound, whatever, and go from there. I'm I'm yeah. trying to make my workflow as efficient efficient as possible. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: no matter how much pre-production you do, something's always going to come up that you weren't prepared for. That's just the nature of it. Dang but yeah. you were prepared to do Plan A. It's much easier to develop a Plan B if you had a Plan A in the first place. Absolutely. But if you get there and everybody has three different assumptions and none of those assumptions work. Then you're starting from scratch. Exactly. Yeah. Now, again, you the problems I hope to encounter are never what are we going to do, right. but how are we going to do it? So we always know what the ultimate thing is, and then we exactly. just got to figure out a different way to get there. Exactly. Every every I've realized that every set, no matter what the budget is that I've ever been on, no matter how much pre-production, there is always a problem. Yeah, there's always something doesn't work, or someone doesn't show up, or the prop falls and a piece breaks off of the prop, and they have to fix. Like there's, I've I have I don't think I've legit in in all the time I've done film, I don't think I've ever been on a set where nothing nothing was wrong. And by the way, that does not change as the budgets increase. <laughs> yep. Does it get amplified? It's always the case. Yep. Whether you have a hundred dollar budget or a hundred million dollar budget, it always happens. Yep. Yes, sir. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, end the interview. But I sincerely appreciate your time and coming on to the yeah. You haven't been asked. You are, you just spouted gold. The last two interviews, yeah. just pure gold. <laughs> and I thank you very much, sir. Woo! Well, Jill, if you would be so kind while I still have service. Yes. And this interview, you ha I believe you have my phone number. I do. Please just give me a quick call. I want to talk to you for like five minutes. Sure. Absolutely. You guys awesome. Have been awesome. I'm thrilled. I hope this is a big success for you guys. And I hope to work with Thank you all. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, sir. All right, you guys. All right. Be well. Bye. I'll see you, Ben. Be good. Yo, that was friggin' awesome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Austin Action Fest podcast.